Uh, Song of Solomon chapter 4. Last week we finished, or we did the entirety of chapter 3, which was uh, basically the wedding ceremony. How many of you guys have ever been to a wedding ceremony? Okay, good. How many of you haven't, I guess? Let me ask that. Who has never been to an actual wedding ceremony? No, just one, two. There's a couple that won't raise their hands that probably haven't. All right. Now, for everyone that went, did you enjoy it? Yeah? Anybody not enjoy it? Why? Too long? Okay. It was boring? Yeah. Uh, gotcha. That's how Whitney and, his eyes, Whitney and I's was. It was supposed to be warm and it ended up being like freezing. And it was outdoors. So everyone has different experiences, but we've, most of us have, have been to a, a wedding ceremony. Um, now I have been able to officiate three different weddings. Um, it seems like they're all pretty similar, but they're all different in a sense. Uh, one thing that I've noticed as I've done them is that they, the ceremony, obviously the, uh, what's it called after the ceremony? I always forget. Reception is, is a lot different in every single one. Like it's, it's basically based on the, the personality of the couple. Uh, but same thing with the ceremony. It's really unique to the, the couple's personality. And so for one, we had one that was kind of, you know, it was fun. And for one, we had that was, you know, it was kind of, it was serious. It was long. It was, um, it was a lot of different things that they wanted implement, implemented within their ceremony that others I've, haven't really ever seen done. Um, and then another one was really just, it was simple. It was just simple. And it was straightforward. It was awesome. It was done in like 20 minutes. And that's what a ceremony should never really be long. Unless you go to a Catholic ceremony, it's going to be, it's going to take a couple days. Um, but a ceremony should last somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes, right? And, uh, and so what, what we see as we read through chapter 3 was this getting ready for the ceremony or the ceremony um, itself, you know, the, the presentation, the the, the beginning of the ceremony coming, um, we see Solomon making his way in, in in verse 6 as he comes in, as you guys remember, on his little uh, traveling couch. If you guys remember this, he's got, he's got 60 valiant men with him. So it's, it's a big thing, right? And again, it's, you know, it's different based on culture as well, how a ceremony is going to look. But pretty much every culture has a ceremony when it comes to a wedding. And the ceremony is really, really important, but the most important part in a ceremony, there's one thing that you can not forget to have in a ceremony. And I tell this to every couple, I'm saying, I tell them, every couple, it's only been three, but I tell the couples that, okay, you, you can't not have this. Everything else, we can do it, we don't have to do it, it's up to you. Anybody, can you guess what is that one thing that you have to have in a ceremony? A ring? No, the ring doesn't matter. Flowers definitely don't matter. Oh, vows, vows. I thought you said flowers. I'm like, flowers, what? Yeah, vows. Vows are the most important part of the ceremony. So the exchanging of the vows. And so we've had, you know, couples that, you know, they do traditional vows that, you know, just repeat after me. And then we've had couples who would write their own vows. And, you know, the exchanging of the vows is the most important part because that is the actual covenant that you are making between a man and a woman, with God. Okay, so that's the most important aspect of a ceremony. So we've got the ceremony that's happening in, in chapter 3, as well as the covenant. It's kind of implied in this. We see the covenant, you know, throughout Scripture. 
right? We've got the covenant promise in Genesis 2:24. Um, we know the act of marriage is consisted of three things, which is leaving, right? What do you leave when you get married? Your, no, what do you leave? Yeah, your parents, your father and your mother. And then you join together, right? You join together through this, this covenant, and you become one flesh. And part of that one flesh is what we're going to see today, which can be seen in a physical union, but also in a spiritual union. I think the spiritual union happens as we make this covenant before God, but then we have this physical union as we see consummated after the wedding, which will be on the wedding night. And so we're going to see this in chapter 4. This is basically the entirety of chapter 4. So I'm going to encourage you, if you can, and I, I know you can do this, is to help me be as mature as possible as we get through this. Okay? I'm not going to go into super fine details of things, um, but I do want to explain this biblically of what this means. So again, the covenant is the most important aspect of the marriage, which we find within the vows. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 says this, as the prophet writes, he says, yet you say, for what reason? The answer is because the Lord has been witness, okay, so the Lord is a witness, he's a part of this, between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she's your companion and your wife by covenant. This is what Malachi says. Okay, so he's implying here, not even implying, but he's saying that a marriage covenant is not just between you and your wife of your youth, but also with the Lord, right? The Lord is the witness who is a witness to the vows or the promises that you have made, which we find in the covenant. And as we know, or as we should know, that when it comes to marriage and it comes to the marriage that God has designed, we go in with the intent that it lasts a lifetime. Is this correct? Yes. Okay. Now, because we are sinners, right? Now, remember, when God designed marriage, he designed it when Adam and Eve were in perfection. Then sin came along. Okay, well, now when sin came along, God has allowed certain things for a marriage to be broken. Okay? So we find in Scripture that there's two reasons given, and it's never really God's heart or intent for a couple to get divorced, but I think that's the kind of mentality that we have in America or just in general now that if I go into marriage, I know that I can break this contract just by divorcing my, my spouse. But when we go into it with the intent of, okay, this is a covenant I've made before God, it's everlasting, it's a lifetime, well, we handle things differently. We do things differently, right? We, it's more valuable to us. Um, so there's two things that God allows, two, two reasons why God allows a divorce. Anybody know what those are? Yes. No. Anyone else? Yes. So if one, if one person is a believer and one isn't, and the one who isn't walks away and doesn't want to be married anymore, then the one who is a believer can allow that to happen. Right? It should never be of the believer's accord to walk away. Okay? The second reason is if there's uh, sexual immorality. Okay? So those are the, very, the two reasons that God gives. And I think you know, we have a hard time with the abuse part. And, you know, I would never say to someone, like, stick in the, in the marriage or stay with that person if they're physically or any way abusing you. I think that would fall under the category of one being a believer and one not being a believer. Okay, and I would just encourage someone to not stick in that 
uh, in that specific space with that person and put yourself in a position to be abused, okay? Um, I'm not saying don't, I'm not saying get divorced, but again, you don't ever put yourself in a position to hurt yourself. Uh, so those are the two reasons that God allows. But again, why does God allow that? Well, because sin is entered, right? But that was never his intent. So we've got the ceremony of a wedding. We've got the covenant of a wedding. Again, it's supposed to be lifelong. You go into it understanding, okay, this is, this is forever, forever in the sense of how long I live, right? We always say, until death do us part, right? I guess that could be an, another reason, but that's not a divorce. Um, and then we've got the consummation, which is the act of consuming something to the full or fulfillment of some goal or desired outcome basically implies perfection or completion. So the completion of it all is found in the physical union that we find between one husband and one wife after the covenant they have made before God. All right, this is what we see all throughout Scripture. We see this in Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19.5, Ephesians 5.31, because every time we see Jesus talk about marriage, he always talks about uh, how good it is between one man and one woman, right, who is a husband and a wife, and how bad it is when any time the man or the woman steps outside of that marriage with anyone else, the sexual immorality, right? And then, you know, we've got the Pharisees, we've got the Sadducees who always challenge Jesus and say, you know, well, when can, when can such and such get, you know, divorced here and there? And Jesus is telling them, he doesn't say it like outright, but implying that, look, stop thinking in such a way that you can find a way out to get divorced. Because what they would do is they would find anything, any reason to get a divorce from their spouse. Like if they, if they found someone prettier in their eyes than their spouse, then they could say, hey, you know, let's, let's get divorced. Or you burnt the chicken, whatever, let's get a divorce. And Jesus is like, no, that's, that's not the intent. That's not, there's not, a, don't stop looking for a way out. That's not good for the marriage. That's not good um, that's not why God has designed it or how God has designed it. So this consummation is this, this completion, right, where we have two separate people. They leave their families. They come together. They make one flesh. We find this in the, the spiritual union, but also in the physical union, okay? And this marks the beginning of the marriage. And so we're going to find this here in chapter 4 tonight. So let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll break it down. So the beloved is speaking. Who is the beloved? Is that the man or the woman? The man, good. This is Solomon speaking to his wife, and he's going to speak about 95% of this chapter. And then the last verse, the Shulamite woman is, is going to respond with, with one verse. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh, into the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my house, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. 
Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinur and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love, and the scent of your perfumes than all the spices. Your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. And here the Shulamite woman responds, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. There's a lot happening here. And man, Solomon is, God did give him wisdom, because the way that he speaks is, you would never find one of us speaking that way, because we are too stupid to ever speak that way. I'd be like, wow, you look really pretty. Like that's, <laughs> you know, but here the way he's so descriptive, it's really, really amazing. And again, one thing that I want to look at is this is really twofold. So we, we don't want to take for granted that this is just an allegory or in a picture of just Jesus in the church. Okay, obviously the, the intent of that is there. And we're going to see the similarities. We're going to see that balance. But also this really is happening. Okay, this is, this is you know, a love story. This is a relationship that is happening between a man and a woman between the Shulamite and the beloved, between Solomon and this woman. And so after chapter 3, after the ceremony and the covenant has been established, well, now we find ourselves in the consummation. And before they even get into the consummation, where they get into the physical act, we see here that Solomon is continuing as we've seen him do. Like, his character doesn't change from the beginning to the end. If anything, like, his character grows. So here he has the opportunity, okay, like, They've done everything really, really well. They've done it, you know, upright. They've done it honorably. They've obeyed the Lord's commands. You know, we understand, we see the, how hard it's been for them to do the right thing, right? Because they've been so enraptured and in love that, like, they, they have a hard time of, of, of that self-control, but they've been able to establish that self-control. And they've, now they're married. And now, since they're married and they've made that covenant, like, they, they have this freedom to enjoy one another, like God has designed, yet Solomon is still showing the self-control that even before he touches her with his hands, he's going to touch her with his words. He goes into this, again, not in a selfish manner, but in a, in a selfless manner. Again, really speaking to her and encouraging her and, you know, saying all these wonderful, pleasant things that to you and I, in the time that we live in, is like, okay, again, you're, you're equating our hair to goat's hair. That doesn't really sound you know, so romantic. But again, in that time, we're going to see how that really is a romantic and thoughtful thing. You know, again, equating things to pomegranates and this and that. It was really, really beautiful how he describes these things. And so what, what he does, again, is he's complimenting her beauty. He's, he's appreciating. He, he's rendering her affection that is due to her, not as a woman, but as a wife. Right? Now that they are married, 
he is rendering affection to her that is due to her as a wife. And Paul actually says that and encourages that to us as husbands and to you as future husbands, to your future wife. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. It's wrong for a husband to withhold any affection from his wife. Right? Because what does Jesus do for his bride? He doesn't ever withhold his affection from us. Right? He, he, he provides that affection for his bride. And so Solomon does that. He does his duty. He does it uh, through the self-control that he has, through the appreciation that he has for his, his wife. And what he does too is that he's going to start basically from the top of her head to the, to the bottom of her, of her feet and just in a general sense reminding her of how beautiful she is to him. No matter what she thinks of herself, he wants to encourage her and remind her, you are beautiful. And I think Jesus does that for us. I don't know, like, if you've ever gone through, like, a bad day or you've done something and you're like, man, I just, I feel like a crummy person. You know, like, maybe you didn't even do anything and just that's the thoughts that you have. You know, like, how does Jesus love me? How does anyone like me? And then what happens is Jesus never withholds his affection. You know, and you read his word or somebody speaks his word to you or just comes and, and speaks a word of knowledge and encouragement and exhorts you and says something and you're like, man, God loves me and God sees me as beautiful, even though sometimes I don't see myself that way. You know, because sometimes we have a wrong view of ourselves, that sometimes we can see ourselves in the negative light, like we're too bad, when in fact God has already redeemed us and he's already saved us and he sees us as spotless, he sees us as clean, he sees us as pure. Like he, he says, you know, his church to him is, is, is gorgeous, right, is beautiful, and I think that's what Solomon does to her as a person because, you know, she has these insecurities. We saw this in chapter one, right? She, she felt as if she had blemishes. And I'm sure for everyone in this room, we could all speak to that, you know, that we have these, these uh, things in our, in our mind, the things that we think of ourselves, these blemishes, um, doubting. And yet what he does is he encourages her and he says, no, you're, you're perfect to me. You're perfect to me, even though you think you may have these blemishes. Remember, she's like, my skin's too dark. He's like, no, you're, you're beautiful. You're lovely. And so he goes on. He's going he's gonna to compliment physical features of her. Seven physical features. And I like this. There's seven in here that we see. You could maybe say there's eight because the temples and cheeks, you can maybe uh, split up as two. Um, but I think we're going we're gonna to kind of put those two together because they're very similar. Um, so he's going to compliment her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her temples and cheeks, her neck, and her breasts. So seven physical features that he's going to describe and he's going to praise to, again, this is going to uplift her, it's going to encourage her, and what this is doing, it's, it's building her trust, it's building the intimacy. Like there's this, this building, like in any good movie, right? It, it builds the story until there's a climax, right? And so in here in this, like with this relationship, it's, it's building, and then there's going to be a climax. So there's seven things that he's going to, again, mention and compliment, and seven is always the number of what in the Bible? Completion, completion, perfection, right? So he's going to give these seven compliments and praises, 
I think, again, just to imply of how perfect she is in his eyes. And that's what matters. And so, again, he's going into this selfless. He's focused on her, not himself. You know, he's taken aback by her beauty. We're going to see as he describes this, as, you know, her beauty is, is better than, that her love is better than wine, um, that he's enraptured with her beauty, you know, all these things. And so first he says here in verse 1, he says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. Again, just this general sense that you're just beautiful. And as he's already described, you're, you're the most beautiful, right? You're, you're the lily amongst what? How does he say it? You're the lily amongst thorns, right? You were, she says, I'm, I'm the lily of, um, what is it? I'm the lily of the valleys. Basically saying, I'm the lily amongst the lilies. Like, I'm the most beautiful of the most beautiful. And he's like, no, you are the only one who is beautiful. And you are the most beautiful. Everyone else compared to you is thorns. And so he starts off in a general sense here in verse, verse 1, but then he gets intentional. And I like this. Because I think sometimes we as guys, we're not as intentional. We're not as notice, like we don't notice things really well. Um, you know, your wife, or well, maybe you guys don't know this because you're not married yet, but your wife will get a haircut and she'll chop off like three centimeters. And she's like, hey, you know anything, notice anything about me? And you're like, no. She's like, oh, I just got a haircut. You didn't notice? My wife doesn't do that. But you get the point. To be intentional, right? Like, so could, could you tell, I wonder how many husbands could actually tell what color eyes their wives have? I don't know. I'd be interested. So, but that's the first thing is he compliments her eyes. He says, you have dove's eyes. And again, I don't know what, what the purpose of, you know, relating it to doves are. I don't, I don't know if doves have beautiful eyes and are looked into a dove's eyes. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has. Um, but he says, you have dove's eyes. Maybe she had really tiny eyes. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But again, the point here is that he's being specific. He notices her eyes, okay? And then he says this, it's behind your veil, right? Well, what's so special about the veil? Well, this was a unique thing. Like, obviously, in our times, when, when are you going to wear a veil? When you get married. You know, you, the only times I can really think of is when you wear a veil is at a wedding or a funeral, right? And obviously, in this instance, it's with a wedding. And I think the same thing in their culture, it was a unique, unique thing, and so obviously, this is the end of their wedding ceremony, beginning of their consummation. She still has her veil on, but he notices her eyes. He compliments her eyes. But then he, he, he moves on. He turns to her hair, and he says, Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Okay, now again, the idea here is not that her hair looks like a goat, because I don't think that would be the greatest of compliments, because goat's hair is coarse and ugly and but I think the picture rough yeah rough and short <laughs> um, which is nothing wrong with short but here with Palestinian goats in their culture they actually had long wavy black hair and so what happens is if, if you get this this imagery in this picture is that if you have like a herd of goats who are running down the mountainside what you're going to see in totality and the, the, the wholeness of the herd is just this one long flowing black hair. And so that's the description that he's getting, like giving, that he's, he's telling us, okay, she, her hair is beautiful, it flows, it's long, it's black. Again, just being intentional with complimenting her looks. So verse 2 goes on to compliment the third thing, the third feature of her, which is her teeth. 
Okay? He says, Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one which bears twins, and none is barren among them. So the third compliment, the third praise, with a third feature, but the third time equating it to an animal. <laughs> right? So the first one was the dove, then we have uh, the goats, and now we have the sheep. He says, Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. Now, why use animals? I think one way we could look at this, and then he's going to also use not just animals, but uh, fruit and spices, is that all those things are natural, right? Like, it's, it's nature. And so I think what he's really implying is that the things that he's complimenting are just her natural beauty, right? Equating it to, to nature and similar to nature. And so again, he says, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. Again, the idea is not that her teeth are woolly or hairy, right? But the fact that they all look the same. So after, you know, the sheep, get, they get their hair cut, they all look the same, right? And what happens after you wash a sheep? Are they dirty or are they clean? They're clean, right? He says, um, which have come up from washing. So they've been washed, they're clean. Say, so he's implying her teeth are clean. That's nice, right? Uh, then he says here that everyone which bears twins. Well, what does that mean? That means they each complement each other, that they match each other, right? They don't have all these nice teeth and then one's like sticking up this way. You're saying you have, you have nice, perfect teeth. And then he goes on to say, as he finishes this, this description of her teeth, that none is barren among them. Well, what does that mean? She's not toothless, right? She's not over there, you know, missing her two front teeth. They're all complete. Again, being very descriptive of just, again, noticing and maybe her teeth weren't perfect, but again, to him, were they? Yeah. And does that, is that all that matters? Yeah, that's all that matters. And so he tells her, which again is going to build up her confidence, which is going to build the trust, which is going to build the intimacy, which is building up to this climax. So verse three, we'll look at the fourth praise, the fourth um, feature. He says, your lips are like a strand of scarlet and your mouth is lovely. And here, the fifth one, your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Again, the idea here is just describing that her lips are, are, are thin, right? And I think in that time, you know, in the days that we live in, I think women want their lips to be full, so they get, like, lip injections, and I don't know, I don't know what they get. What do they get? Is it Botox? Lip injections? They put something, I don't know what it is. But they want, like, big, puffy lips, Right? And I think the point behind that is because that is what I, I believe they think that is attractive in our time, in our day, in our culture, right? But in this time, we see that thinner lips were actually more attractive in this day. And so he's describing them again as a strand of scarlet and your mouth is lovely, that, that they're well outlined, right? That they're beautiful. Scarlet is the color of what? Red, right? So that it has a, a beautiful, deep red color. And then he moves on to her temples. He says, behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. And I think, again, here, just describing like this, the, her, her cheeks being rosy, her cheeks being, you know, ruby red. Then he moves on to her neck. And he says, your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Now, I think here is where we get a little bit of a transition from, okay, not just the physical aspect of her neck, but also now we're going to look at more of her character, 
right? That, that there is a physical beauty of her, but also this, this beauty of her character. Because, again, it's not like she has a long neck. It's not like she has a weak neck. Because in that time, if you, if you remember, as we've studied through the Word of God, is that really there's, there's two ways to look at a neck or three ways to look at a neck. Is that one, you know, sometimes if it's bent over, it's a picture of uh, humiliation. We also see, as Jesus describes the Israelites more often than not, that he calls them a blank-necked group of people. You guys remember what it is? Stiff-necked, right? He calls them a stiff-necked group of people. And what, what does it mean to be stiff-necked? It means that you are stubborn, right? It means that you, you are not going to obey. You are, there is no grace and humility within you. And so we've got this, this picture of hum, humiliation. We've got the picture of uh, stubbornness. But here in this description, uh, likening it to a tower of David built for an armory, it's a picture of, of strength, right? And so I don't think he's just implying, man, you got like really nice deltoids and a really thick neck. Like it's really strong. Like I don't think that's what he's implying in the physical aspect, but in the character aspect that, that she holds her head up high, right? That, that she, she has strength. She has dignity to her. You know, she's not walking around with her head down. She's not walking around with her head, you know, her, 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 her neck stiff, but rather it's strong symbolizing the strength of her character. And I think this is what he's praising her here for. And then he looks upon what is on her neck, as I think what the implication here is at the end of verse 4 is the necklace that she's wearing, but he describes it as such. He says, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. And so again, there's this, this deeper meaning. The stones and the shields of warriors are both symbols of strength. And again, it's clear here that she walks around with her head held high and that she is a strong and dignified woman. And so he adds a little bit more than just the physical aspect. So then we get to the last one in verse 5. He says, your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. And so what I've been in saying is all the way up until this point, he's been very intentional to keep things non-sexual. That everything that he has commented on has been just a, a feature of, you know, normality, like eyes and lips and nose. I don't know if he's complimenting her nose. Um, maybe she didn't have a nice nose. I don't know. But he's complimented these, these simple things and yet he gets to this point, and again, it just shows the self-control that he's had. It shows that they both abided by the encouragement that they've given us here three times in this book, the first time being in chapter 2, verse 7, where she says, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases, right? So not until this moment where now it pleases has he actually made these statements and pointed out how beautiful these things are to him. Does this make sense? The time now pleases. It's now appropriate. Within the confines, within the, you know, this area where they're at, they now can, can do this. And what's awesome is that it's been such a good buildup that it's, it's, it's going to be amazing, right? And it's going to continue to be amazing. But one thing I want to look at in regards to this verse is going back to Proverbs where we find a similarity in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 19. And this is what it says. It says, As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. And what we're going to see as we continue through this chapter is that 
the woman's body is made for her husband, and her husband's body is made for her, right? And we're going to see this not just um, through this chapter, but we see this all throughout Scripture whenever it's brought up, right? Jesus says that, Paul says that, that you are made for one another to treat each other as if it was your own body, right? Now, again, that is all within the confines of what? Marriage, right? Within marriage. It's not a taboo thing. It's not a bad thing, but it can be bad, again, when we start to dabble in these things and we start to do these things before, uh, time, before it pleases, right? Be- before the right time, which we find in the confines of marriage. Because every time that Jesus talks about sexual immorality in regards to the confines of marriage, it's always found outside the marriage, right? Now, obviously, there can be sexual immorality within the marriage, but when he's talking about the marriage, it's oftentimes found before or outside the marriage. And so what Proverbs says, it says, you know, always be enraptured with her love. And I like that because really what it implies is being intoxicated, right? To be intoxicated always in her love. Now, obviously, you probably have never been intoxicated, but you know what it means. You've seen movies, you understand, you know, it's usually described like in the Old Testament and Isaiah that it, it implies like a man staggering down the street, right? Um, when we were in Philly, that's what it looked like. I remember when we were in, um, I mean, obviously I've seen this everywhere, <laughs> people being drunk. Um, but I remember one of the first times that I really saw it, like, in totality was when we were in England, and, and we were uh, above a, a pub, and we stayed up at night and just watched people, like, walking into poles and, and windows, and I'm like, what, what is this? <laughs> What's the enticement of that? To get so drunk that you can't stand and you can't walk. And so again, that's, that's the idea, the picture that we get to be enraptured, to be intoxicated, um, basically implying that you are so crazy in love with your wife, right? To be always enraptured with her, right? That you are head over heels in love with her. Now again, that is the intention of marriage, that marriage is not supposed to be boring, right? Our relationship with Christ is not supposed to be boring. It's not supposed to be robotic. It's not supposed to be stagnant, right? We can, we can find that within marriages, you know, now we can find that in people's relationship with Christ, but that has never been the intention. It's always to be, uh, to be in a sense, as it's described, intoxicating, you know, like that we are, that we do have the emotions, that we do have the desires, and I think you know, the question begs is, how can I be head over heels in love with my wife? Or how can you be head over heels in love with Christ? Right? How, how can that happen? Right? Well, I think it's this. I think you choose to be so. I think it's a choice. It's not just some magical fairy dust. It's not some love potion. It's not just some mystical force that gives you these emotions and feelings. But no, I think it's truly a choice. And I think when you decide to love then those things follow. And I really believe, too, that love stimulates love. And so how, how does that happen? Well, okay, how do, how do I, how do I, how am I becoming head over heels over for Christ? Well, allow him to love you, right? First John 4.19 says that he loves us, that we love God because what? He first loved us. So because he loves us, it stimulates a love for us uh, in us for him, 
in the same way it does between a husband and a wife. And this is what I encouraged husband, husbands and wife at our past marriage conference this year that, you know, I think many of them just go throughout the day and the weeks and the months where it's just, it's just monotonous, it's boring. You know, you, at the very beginning of a relationship, I mean, you, you're on a high, right? You've got those, those feelings, those emotions that are sweeping over you. I remember that, like, I've told you guys this before, that Whitney and I, you know, we would talk on the phone for like five hours a day, you know, just because like there was that enrapturing. Uh, you guys know this, like you've, you've had those feelings and those emotions before, but just because you get married, it's not like you're sentenced to prison for life, right? Now, okay, goodness, it's just one woman, it's for your entire life, you know, how much more do you have to talk about? How much more do you, can you do together? You know, how much more closer can you get? You know, I think if you choose to be stagnant, you'll be stagnant, and it'll be boring, and you'll just go on with your days and your life day by day. But if you choose to love, it will stimulate love, even if one is not loving back. If you choose to love, it will, the other will start to express love. When I choose to love, the feelings, the emotions are going to come. When I allow God to love me and I love him back, it's going to bring about a joy. It's going to bring about feelings. Because again, we talk about this a lot, and I've said it a lot, that the agape love that we have is never based on feelings, okay? And that's true. But don't get it mixed up, don't get it wrong, that it's void of feelings. When I say it's not based on feelings, when I make the decision to love, it's not a matter of if I feel like doing it. Because you know what? Sometimes we just don't feel like doing it. But again, what happens is, even though I don't feel like doing it, if I choose to love what's going to happen, because it's a choice and it's, it's a decision, is those feelings will then match my choice, right? Those feelings will match my choice. So when I start to love God, when I start to love my spouse, well, then those feelings are going to emerge. The passion is going to emerge. The joy, the excitement, all those feelings that, you know, we think we once had are still there, but it has to be a choice, and so in verse 6, let's try and pick this up. Verse 6, he says, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh into the hill of frankincense. And so here he's just simply expressing, he's expressing how he just wants to spend time with her. Right? That he can't wait for the, the day to end and night to come. Right? Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. You know, he's he's welcoming the night to come because he knows that this is the appropriate setting for the consummation of the love that they have. 